Alright, our text for today uh, comes from 1 Kings 17, uh, the verses 2 and following. 1 Kings 17, verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Today we are continuing 
our series in 1 Kings on the uh, life and ministry of Elijah the prophet. And while I'm trying as much as possible to ensure that each of the sermons in this series can stand on their own two feet, um, if you haven't watched or listened to last week's sermon, I would encourage you to go back and do so before watching this one. Um, we have the ability to do that now with these pre-recorded things. Um, and the reason for that is that last week I took roughly the first third of our time setting the historical stage and surveying the broader covenant context of these stories um, in order to better position us to, to understand what we're actually seeing here in these narratives in 1 Kings. Um, but if you'd rather not, that's okay too. Um, it is certainly my hope that uh, this will still be edifying to you. All right, let's begin with a brief recap of last week. Uh, last week we saw that God had instituted human offices um, for the purpose of administering the covenant relationship between him and his people. Uh, we saw that this started with the raising up of the priesthood, and that when they failed miserably in their task, uh, by neglecting God's word, God raised up the monarchy to carry out the task in their place. And of course, uh, last week we saw very vividly uh, just how spectacularly the kings failed uh, in carrying out this task and how God's word had been all but erased from the collective memory of his people. Enter Elijah. Elijah is the first of the new office of covenant administrators called the prophets. And last week we saw that Elijah comes onto the scene very abruptly to announce God's judgment on his people for their disobedience in the form of a drought. But we also saw that this was God's way of extending mercy to his people by putting a trial in their lives that would shake their faith in the false gods that they had come to trust and to turn them back to the true and living God of Israel in repentance. So this is where we pick up the narrative in today's text. And what we're going to see today is that, well, well last week we saw God's uh, discipline justly pronounced on the faithless people of Israel. We'll see that it also falls on the faithful. See, the effects of the drought are not limited to those who have forgotten God's word, but also to the surrounding nations who had not entered into the same covenant agreement with God that Israel had. And also... Um, or even, especially, on his own prophet, the man, the, the human representative of his very own word. And so we see that sometimes we bring trials on ourselves in life as discipline for our actions. And that's what we saw, obviously, last week uh, in our text, that as the people of Israel had forgotten God's words, that he had explicitly spoken to them in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, and elsewhere told them this was going to happen if they chased after other gods, but they needed their memories jogged. So sometimes, yes, we bring discipline on ourselves, but other times, trials just seem to fall on us out of nowhere. Sometimes there is no discernible cause or reason. And still, as we saw last week, the author of Hebrews says, endure hardships as discipline. But not discipline in a 
punitive sense per se, but as training. Assume that God is teaching you something in this. Assume that God is preparing you for something in this. And uh, last week I came up here with probably three pages too many, and I had to decide in the moment uh, what to spend time on and what to skip over. And one of the things I skipped over is the illusion that the author of Hebrews employs here in his explanation of God's fatherly discipline. Uh, We read from Hebrews 12 last week, and verse 11 says this, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The author of Hebrews is drawing on an agricultural metaphor. Think of yourself as a field. And at the beginning of a growing season, the farmer needs to plow or to disc or somehow break up the hard earth in order to prepare it to receive the seed and water. And this is what trials and hardships are in our life. Without this preparation period, the ground would be either too hard to receive seed or water seed and water, or the existing weeds and rocks would choke out any good thing that actually took root. Trials and hardships prepare us to receive God's word and to produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. Scripture is clear that it is primarily through trials that we are refined and sanctified. And it's through trials that we learn the true character of God in a way that actually sticks. In other words, it's only when our backs are pushed up against the wall, when we are brought to the very end of our own human resources that we really begin to understand what it means that His grace is sufficient for us. In last week's sermon, we saw how God had prepared the hardship of drought to bring Israel to repentance. And this week we'll see how God uses the very same drought to accomplish something different in both Elijah and in the widow of Zarephath. And so we enter our text at verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Just as suddenly as Elijah had appeared to Ahab, he now disappears again. God hides him away in the mountains near the brook Cherith, and Cherith is in the hill country of Gilead, uh, which is the no man's land where Elijah is actually from, right? And it's commonly identified with the modern day uh, Wadi al-Yubis in northern Jordan. And it is still considered one of the most rugged and wild stretches of terrain in the Fertile Crescent today. And so while Elijah may be staying in his own province or region, he's clearly living in isolation, away from all of the creature comforts of life and community, and nobody knows where he is. So we ask the question, why? Why has God hidden him away like this? And there are at least three things going on here. Uh, Firstly, and and most obviously, consider the words of Elijah to Ahab in verse 1. He says, 
There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Except by my word. Ahab, yet, Ahab does not yet recognize that Elijah's words are God's words in this. And this is evident in the fact that after three and a half years of drought, as we'll see in chapter 18, Ahab still hasn't repented. And when, uh, and when he first uh, meets Elijah again for the first time after that, he addresses him as the troubler of Israel. He blames it all on Elijah. And the irony is thick. Ahab's forgetting of the Lord is so extreme that he thinks that this whole drought is just a little bit of sorcery that Elijah has cooked up to taunt him. And so he believes that if he can kill Elijah, or at least torture him into reversing the curse and then kill him, the drought will end. And so in, 18, in chapter 18, again, in the future, we learn that Ahab has sent men to every nation and kingdom, it says, looking for Elijah. And when these men came back, they had to swear an oath on their own lives and the lives of their families that um, no one that they had spoken to had seen Elijah or heard from him. He was very serious about trying to find Elijah and kill him. And so the first and most obvious reason for hiding Elijah away in the wilderness is for his own personal safety. God is not finished with him yet, and so God is going to preserve him. So that's one thing going on. Second thing going on is that the withdrawal of Elijah is serving to help Israel understand the lesson that God is trying to teach them through the drought. You know, as mentioned last week, Elijah is functioning as God's mouthpiece. He's the representative, the embodiment of God's word. So the withdrawal and hiding away of Elijah is the withdrawal and hiding away of God's word from them. Without the word, there was no hope for a rain or dew to be restored. And without rain or dew, there's no hope for life at all. God is teaching Israel that they must live by his word. Alright, thirdly, Elijah himself, he is being prepared and confirmed for the ministry that lay ahead, or lie ahead. Um, <laughs> this is a familiar pattern. Uh, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, where does he lead them? Into the wilderness, right? They're hungry and they're thirsty and God miraculously provides water and food for them. And we're told explicitly that God does this to test them. He's preparing them for life with him in the promised land under the mediation of the priesthood. And similarly, David, after being anointed king by Samuel, is driven out by Saul into the wilderness to spend years hiding in caves, looking over his shoulder, wondering when Saul was going to catch up to him. He was going to get an arrow in the back. It's interesting. This was a time of preparation for David as well. God was preparing him for his task as God's king. And it's interesting that it's during this time that David wrote the words of Psalm 34, which we sung and used as a call to worship this morning. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. 
The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David writes this while he's living in caves, running for his life. The words of this psalm are the fruit of David's testing in the wilderness. True belief that those who seek the Lord lack nothing that they truly need. That's the kind of faith that can only grow out of a personal experience of God's grace in the midst of hardship. And so Elijah is in good company. And God faithfully sustains him at the brook, providing for him in what Elijah must have thought was the most unlikely way imaginable. Verse 6, The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. Ravens. All right, ravens brought him scraps of meat and bread twice a day. Think about that. I'm sure Elijah would have been... I'm sure it would have taken Elijah a while to get over the disgust at what he was being given. you got to think about this. Ravens are carrion eating birds. They are not delivering New York strip loins and fresh sourdough from the keg. Right? These are strips of flesh torn off of roadkill and stale crumbs stolen from someone's compost. This would have been disgusting to anyone. But remember, Elijah was also a faithful Torah-keeping Israelite. Ravens themselves were unclean according to their ceremonial laws. And so not only was the food itself disgusting and contaminated, but his only company were unclean as well. Talk about a double whammy. One lesson that can be learned is this. God's provision for us in times of trial often doesn't look like what we think it should but because he knows us intimately, and because he knows what he's preparing us for, it is always exactly what we need. I'm sure that if it were left up to him, Elijah would have just settled for manna and quail, uh, like his people when they were in the wilderness, but there was a personalized lesson in this for him. God was preparing him for what was coming next. And after a while, I bet he started to look forward to his visitors and their little gifts of daily bread. And I have no doubt that he came to praise God at the sight of their arrival. With the words of David's psalm, will taste and see that the Lord is good. It's from this shifted perspective there's an almost Edenic quality to the scene, man lacking no good thing, simply enjoying the daily rhythm of God's presence and provision. Elijah is, is representative of the covenant people of Israel. This is supposed to be their relationship to God. It's perfect. It's shalom. But it's not what he would have asked for. And Elijah lived this way for an unspecified amount of time. But it was at least long enough for the effects of the drought to be confirmed. If we look at verse 7, we see, after a while, the brook dried up. 
because there was no rain in the land. Elijah's stream finally runs dry. And if the brook up in the hills has run dry, it is a safe bet that things are not looking good down in farmland. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. This command from God would have come as a total shock to Elijah for at least two reasons. First, Zarephath is in the heart of Phoenicia. It's about halfway between the ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon. And if you remember from last week's text, Jezebel is from Sidon. This is the heart of Baal's country. This is absolutely pagan land. Secondly, widows in the 9th century BC were a stereotype of hopeless poverty at the best of times. But during a drought, a pagan widow would have seemed a far less likely source of provision than even ravens. So again, why does God send Elijah to Zarephath? And again, there's at least three things going on here. First, same as last time, there's the practical matter of keeping Elijah alive. God's not finished with him yet, so he needs to sustain him. The brook has run out in the mountains, and so a change of venue is inevitable. Secondly, again, like last time, just like the withdrawal of God's word served as a lesson to Israel, even more painful is the reality that God's word has not just been taken from them, but it's taken up residence with a Canaanite. There's a transfer of God's presence and provision here that would have stung deeply for any Israelite who would have heard of this. And here's why. Again, last week we did a lot of uh, traveling to and from uh, the book of Deuteronomy, where we see the people being prepared to enter the land, and God explaining to them how it's going to go. Blessings if they obey, curses if they disobey, and then Moses sings this song near the end of the book. <laughs> Again, it's not very encouraging. He's, he's anticipating what's coming. Moses says this in verse 32, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom their fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. God is using this to teach Israel that they are not special. The only thing about them, that, the only thing that made them special was their relationship to him. And so if they wanted to reject him, he could simply raise up another nation to be his people. God is essentially saying to Israel in this, you're about to learn that you need me a lot more than I need you. 
Ouch. And third, like last time, there is a lesson, there's preparation here for both Elijah and for the widow. And we start with Elijah. For Elijah, uh, he had been taught in the most vivid way at the brook in the mountains that God is not just the God of clean things, but he's the God, the Lord of it all. All things are at his disposal. He can provide for his people using whatever means he deems necessary and good. Now Elijah is learning that God is not simply Israel's God, but he's the God of the whole world. And this is what, this is what God's covenant with Israel was always supposed to to be, was always supposed to lead to, to accomplish the inclusion of all nations into the blessings of the provision and the presence of God. When God first made the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, he said this, he said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. For Elijah to be able to carry out his role as the new administrator of God's covenant, he needed to be reminded of the scope of the gospel. God is testing the widow of Zarephath while training Elijah what it means that he will bless those who bless his people. Verse 10. 10b, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And she said, oh, sorry, and as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now... I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. The author presents this woman as the picture of destitution and hopelessness. She is actually gathering sticks to start a fire to bake her last meal for her and her son, fully expecting that they're going to starve to death after this. This is a woman whose back is really against the wall. And into her desperate situation walks the word of the Lord, just as he walked into Samaria. But Ahab had closed his ears. Now we're going to see that the widow listens. Ahab had doubled down in his unbelief choosing instead to rely on his own resources, and he paid the consequences. But the widow believes, knowing that she has nothing left to lean on, and yet she's afraid. And this is such a relatable and human moment. You know, in the panicked frenzy of our desperate situations, when we have nowhere left to turn and we've exhausted our resources, the Lord speaks. Listen to the words of the Lord to her through Elijah. This is verse 13a. 
And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Fear not. Do not fear. These are the words of favor. These are the words that God speaks to his own people. And now he speaks them to a Canaanite woman. Isaiah 41, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And again in verse 13, For for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not. I am the one who helps you. You can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ rumbling in the distance like thunder of an approaching storm in these words. Elijah had gone to Israel to announce curses for covenant disobedience on them. And then he was sent to Zarephath to announce God's covenant blessing for obedience on a pagan widow. And do not fear is a command that always comes wrapped in a promise in Scripture. Elijah says, do not fear. And this is the promise, 1415a, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. The widow responds in faith. She offers Elijah, and in effect she offers God, the first portion of the last of her resources. And God responds with amazing personalized grace. But an important interpretive point needs to be made here. These stories that we're reading are all about God's uh, miraculously meeting uh, physical daily needs of his people, right? And Israel's stories are indeed our stories, but not necessarily in that way. God dealt with Israel in an earthy, uh, tangible way, at least in part, to teach us what we need, uh, to teach us rather that what we need most is not earthly provision and land, but to point us to the unseen spiritual realities of the gospel. Last week, I mentioned that uh, Old Testament narratives are one of the ways that God uh, communicates deep, complex truths about himself and how he relates to us in ways that we can actually grasp, the ways that we can actually understand. Otherwise, these things would remain theological abstractions. Stories like these, in stories like these, the spiritual realities of the gospel are represented by physical realities. And we need to know this because faithful Christians all around the world starve to death. And that's just the fact. We can't shy away from it. It doesn't mean that they didn't have enough faith. That's the hideous error of the prosperity gospel. Let's look at verse 14. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. 
until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. This is just a temporary provision. This isn't everything she's ever going to need. And notice that God didn't give her a Ferrari or a private jet or even an overflowing supply of flour or oil. But rather, he gives her just enough for each day. And when we read this text, we see that you know, she would have used it up every day. Every day. Right? She would have come to the end of her spot. She would have made her last meal. And that makes every morning a new opportunity to be surprised by God's faithful provision for her. And she realized that. Yet again, there's just enough for today's meal. It wasn't all that she would ever need at once. It was God's grace for today, meant to point her to a much deeper need being met. He sustains her on these little scraps of nourishment, just like Israel in the desert and Elijah at the brook, to teach her to lean on him. Have you been there? Have you been in that place of discouragement or hopelessness or exhaustion and learned through painful personal experience that God sustains you through those dark nights with what sometimes seem like little scraps of grace that come from the most unlikely places? There's a documentary on Netflix called American Gospel, yes. I'm pleased to actually be able to recommend something on Netflix with a clear conscience. <laughs> it's a documentary called American Gospel and Christ Alone. Um, you'll have to plug it into the search bar because I'm sure it's buried deep in the archives, but it is there. And it tackles this very issue. And it is well worth the two-hour time investment just for the heart-wrenching testimony of Catherine and Russell Berger alone. There were a couple who came to know the goodness of the true God through devastating personal circumstances. And our widow's circumstances are also about to become a bit more dire. Verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me, have, sorry, you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. God had given the widow new hope by sustaining her and her son's lives through the trip. Now they had a real chance, a real shot at making a life for themselves. But without her son, the widow is right back in the same hopeless position. There is more than just a mother's heartbreak going on here. In the ancient Near East, a widowed woman with no sons had no options. She would have lived her life out as a slave and a beggar. And so she thinks this has all just been a cruel joke. And it's not that hard to imagine if we consider her worldview. The pagan deities of the ancient Near East were not like the God of Israel. They were petty and selfish, and they didn't care about humans unless they could use them for something. 
And so up to this point, everything that had happened to her would have been um, explained by her worldview and her culture as her having found some favor with Baal, because Baal's the provider of crops and water and fertility and life, right? And so she could very easily have clung to her syncretistic worldview and say, you know, all religions lead to God. Uh, Elijah, you call him Yahweh, but I call him Baal, but really they're the same thing. You know, she had tasted and seen that the Lord was good, but, but was he really different from the gods of her land? And the answer, of course, is yes. The gods of Canaan were limited beings. There were things that they couldn't do. There were places that they couldn't go. And Baal could supposedly, in their understanding, give you rain and food, but he can't bring people back from the dead because the underworld is the kingdom of Mott. And the only time Baal ever went there in the mythology, Mott defeated him and killed him, and it was the queen mother god that had to go down into the underworld and rescue him. So Baal is not that good. He's not that powerful. But the true God, the God of Israel, is the Lord of all. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And God has set the stage for the widow to learn who he truly is through this trial. Like Israel, like David, like Elijah, Jesus began his earthly ministry by being driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested and when Satan tempted him to bow the knee and to receive bread from him, Jesus famously said these words from Matthew 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, God knows that we need more than just our daily physical bread. We need the curse of sin reversed. We need death itself to be defeated on our behalf. And so Elijah, as God's anointed one, covers the body of the dead boy with his own and agonizes in intercession for the boy, pleading with God to remove the curse of death from him. Verse 22, And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She says, Now I know. You see, the widow would never in a million years have chosen to go through this trial. But here she acknowledges that this is what it had to take for her to actually know, to truly believe that the word of the Lord is truth. You see, Jesus didn't simply come to ensure our security and our well-being in this life. He came to crush the head of the serpent and to reverse the curse. He came to put an end to death. Elijah's brook eventually dried up. But Jesus has opened up to us the fountain of living water. John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The widow's flower eventually ran out. Her oil eventually ran out. But Jesus came as the bread of life. John 6, 36, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And inevitably, the widow's son eventually would have died again. But in Christ we have life everlasting. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. These are the true words of God. These are the words of the gospel for you and for I. When your back is against the wall, when you have exhausted all of your resources, when you've been brought to the very end of yourself, God has something to say to you. And his word is intimately personal and infinitely applicable, meaning that he absolutely has something to say to you in your unique circumstances. You are the field being prepared to receive the seed and water of his word. Are you listening for it? Receive it and know it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word and for your goodness to us, which we do not deserve. Father, it's so easy when life gets hard to forget who you are and how kindly you've always dealt with us. Lord, teach us to seek you in the dark times and instruct our hearts to know you, to truly know you and your goodness towards us.